KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. Welcome to my show. Welcome back to my show. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, if you want to follow me online, I'm everywhere. Dr. Wendy Walsh, just D-R, Wendy, like Peter Pan, Walsh, W-A-L-S-H. Uh, I had such a weekend. Why do I feel like every time I start the show, I'm like, I got to catch up with my friends and tell them what I did this weekend. But I do. I mean, I always have something to report because it's Sunday afternoon and usually you do stuff on the weekend, right? So yesterday, all day, I was at Mount St. Mary's University for this amazing day called Ready to Run. And it was designed to help women who eventually at some point in their life want to run for public office, just give them information. So there were panel discussions with various female elected officials, some Pacific uh, Pacific political action committees, yes, PACs. Um, how, there were uh, things, there were seminars on how to raise money, which they call the mother's milk of politics, money. Uh, the psychology of why women run and why men run for very different reasons. Hey, you know who I ran into? I ran into KFI's Elizabeth Espinosa. She was on a media panel there talking about how to communicate. I wasn't sitting in on that one. Apparently, I know how to use the media to communicate. So I was more about, like, how do you raise money? Um, and it was really informative. I loved it. The most interesting fact is they said usually when a woman chooses to run for public office, she does it out of a desire for service. She wants to care and nurture for constituents. When a man chooses, he just wants the power. He wants his name on the door. He wants to be on the ballot. He wants to run. I don't know. And they said women spend way too much time debating about whether they should run. They should just do it. Like a guy just said, hey, I'm going to run. He tells all his friends and he just runs. That's it. And women, on the other hand, are like, do I have enough credentials? Let me check with this person. Do you think I should? Et cetera. Uh, So that was very interesting. And then this afternoon, I came from my dear friend and attorney, Lisa Bloom's house, where she and I co-hosted a fundraiser for Katie Hill, who's running uh, uh, in the 25th congressional district. Um, and that was fun because she brought Lisa and also invited supermodel Janice Dickinson, fresh off testifying at the Bill Cosby trial. Really, I chatted with her. We sat in the corner like girlfriends gossiping. And she said, it's not bad enough that she had to hold inside herself the memory of being ruthlessly drugged and raped in 1982 and hold that for so many years. But she said... The double whammy was being cross-examined by um, Cosby's attorneys. And the names they called her, the things she went through. It's amazing in this day and age that women who are victims still have to be treated so badly on the stand. Um, So enough of that. That was my weekend. Oh, and my house guests, my two young Canadian friends from Toronto, they they cooked me a really nice steak dinner last night with a salad. So I didn't even do the dishes. So I was like, that's a nice thank you. There's my weekend. So can we talk about happiness? You know, I am a big proponent of happiness. Not that we're supposed to be happy all the time. I think part of being human is that we have to be able to tolerate and manage the rainbow of emotions that we all feel. And there are moments in any given day where you may feel happy, sad, joyful, surprised, Uh, A little eh, bored, down, excited, angry, frustrated. These are all natural, normal human emotions. And in fact, I believe that a great deal of unhappiness comes from the fact that some people believe you're supposed to be happy all the time. And this is what we should only be striving for. When instead, 
I think the key to happiness, one of the keys, I'll tell you a big research finding in just a second, but one of the keys to happiness is being able to watch our feelings. This is really how and where we manage them. And when I'm trying to manage an uncomfortable feeling, and there are different ways we can do it because sometimes uh, distraction is actually helpful if it's something that ruminating is not going to fix, right? So uh, if I'm angry with somebody and I'm going, you know, in my head over and over, well, I should have said that and she should have said that and why didn't I say that? And, and thinking about the conversation over and over until it becomes rumination, that's not solving anything. Although sometimes you do need to take, you know, emotional stuff, filter it through your prefrontal cortex, make a plan for your next move from an intellectual place, not an emotional place. But, you know, if you're just ruminating, then distraction can work. Literally telling yourself, I'm going to put this out of my mind. I'm not going to think about this right now. I'm going to meditate because I got to get a good night's sleep and I don't want to deal with this. Sometimes that can work. But the other thing is I, I often, when I have negative feelings, do a body scan because, you know, psychologists call the stomach our second brain. And I must tell you, a lot of stuff goes on in that stomach when you have feelings. You know, that bile just surges. I think the biggest, for me, the biggest, uh, if I'm feeling angry, where I feel it in my body most often is my chest. I feel my heart rate go up and I feel tightness in my chest. But when I'm feeling shame or embarrassment, um, I definitely feel that in my stomach as kind of like, ugh. I don't know how to describe it, like, ugh. And then um, the other one is if I'm having feelings of loss, disappointment, say, you know, I really was hoping to see somebody and they canceled on me and this was really emotionally important to me. That's a big one deep down in my stomach. I feel that there. But the difference between somebody like me who's trained and seasoned and knows how to manage her feelings by watching them is that I don't often have knee-jerk reactions. I sit back and go, oh, that's an interesting feeling in my stomach. I don't like this feeling that I'm having. Huh, what is this feeling designed to tell me here? Should I be, you know, ending this friendship uh, explaining my feelings better, picking up the phone instead of texting because I'm just misreading it because it's a text, right? It's, what do I need to do here? And I also sit back and just sort of watch it go through my body, spend its little time going, eh, yeah, you can feel embarrassed, you can feel loss, you can feel a little tightness in your chest. I'm going to just breathe and watch it and see what happens. And that's my technique for feeling management, um, but new research that has come out recently shows that there's actually one singular key to happiness. Now, again, happiness is not supposed to happen all the time. And sometimes happiness does depend on incredible moments, getting a promotion, falling in love, going on a great vacation. Those experiences can lead to happiness. But what consistently has shown to increase people's happiness on a regular basis well, according to a, get this, 75-year Harvard stu study. Now, that's a longitudinal study if there ever was one. 75 years. Called the Harvard Grant Study. They followed 268 male Harvard graduates from the classes of 1938. I guess there weren't enough females to follow back in 1938. Uh, and they followed them for 75 years. And here's what they found. Exactly what I've been preaching for years. Connection is everything. The only thing that truly matters in life is relationships. 
your connection with your families, your friendships, and of course, your romantic relationships. And also, it's not about how many friends you have. It's about the depth of those relationships. Can you be vulnerable? Can you be authentic? Can you be there for each other? Do you feel accepted and understood? This is correlated with high levels of happiness, along with a little few other findings, like what we knew. Money and power don't lead to greater happiness. And uh, Thank goodness. I know, exactly. Isn't it nice to be poor and happy? It's fabulous. <laughs> um, Amy, I love you. And also, when we come back, hardships in life have potential to even make us happier. And I'll explain when we get back. I'll have a Harvard professor with us. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Amy King, do you have the news for us? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. KFI AM 640, you are listening to Wendy Walsh. Thank you so much for being with me. You can find me online at Dr. Wendy Walsh, just D-R, Wendy Walsh, everywhere. Please follow me. Write to me. I love it when it feels interactive. So we're talking about happiness because I'm obsessed with happiness. Here's some good news for you who may be a millennial and grumpy. There is a light at the end of the tunnel because research shows that happiness tends to have a U-shape across the lifespan. In other words, kids are the most happy and then it gets a little difficult in midlife. Hey, we got all the burdens of taking care of everybody, older generations, younger generations, careers, our mortgages. It's so stressful. The traffic, I'll just say that. And then happiness starts to go up again as people age over the age of 50 people start getting real happy. So I'm always obsessed with research on happiness. And last week I was watching my Sunday morning show, the CBS, uh, I think it's just called Sunday morning. The one for people, Joey, I bet you've never seen it, right? Do you know why you've never seen it? Why is that? You have, you've never seen it, right? I don't, I don't think so. Because it comes on at 6.30 in the morning on Sunday mornings. Yeah. They are for those <laughs> of us who are morning people who like to have a latte and stay in bed and watch an hour and a half of slow journalism. So this great story about a guy who was like a, investment banker, making a ton of money, and so unhappy. So he literally quit his job and applied to the Dallas Fire Department. And they caught up with him many years later, 13 years later. uh, And he's in a two-bedroom rental with a family and happy as anything and said wouldn't take the money, is really happy. So I tracked down the researcher uh, who did a lot of this research on money and happiness and I'd like to welcome Dr. Ashley Willems to the show. Hi, Dr. Ashley. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Did How I say you your know? name totally wrong? It's Willens? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. W-H-I-L-L-A-N-S. Okay, so I'm reading over your bio, and uh, you're Canadian. I am Canadian. So am I. That's amazing. Amazing. And my daughter goes to Harvard, and she's Canadian. So there you go. You should go, go have breakfast with them. They do these Canadian club breakfasts over there undergrads oh the faculty aren't invited to those oh darn it (laughs) okay so dr ashley you work in the business school and i was really interested to hear about your research that focuses on those everyday decisions in money spending that can make a difference in our personal lives even our relationships and it impacts our well-being so tell me a little bit about your research Yeah, my research really looks at how we can make daily decisions with regard to our money that can also shape the way that we spend our time. 
So a lot of my research focuses on what we like to think of as time and money trade-offs and really thinking and, and, and focusing on, on the fact that the way that we spend our money can significantly impact how much time we have, the quality of our time. And so we started looking at this question just first by surveying people um, and asking them whether they're more like uh, a Tina or more like a Maggie in the world. And uh, this is just an example. But we said Tina values her time more than her money. So she's willing to give up money in order to have more time, uh, such as by working fewer hours. Uh, Maggie values money more than time. So Maggie would rather give up time in order to have more money. Mm-hmm. And what we found across survey after survey after survey, including those uh, with a lot of money and those with less, is that people overall who value time over money said um, made daily decisions in line with that value. So they were more likely to um, take a direct flight versus an indirect flight. Oh, yeah, that's so the worst. The, not, the ones that stop over and you sit for two hours. I value exactly. my time. Uh-huh. What else? Uh, it, uh, they were also more likely to uh, forego a, uh, a pay raise uh, so that they could have more time to spend with friends and family. Uh, graduating students uh, were more likely to say that they would rather live closer to work. So when thinking about renting, they would rent closer to work and uh, pay pay more money. And, and overall, they also uh, just on average, worked less and volunteered more. And what we found across all these studies of thousands and thousands of working adults is that people who were willing to give up money in order to have more time reported greater overall life satisfaction, greater positive mood, less negative mood, and that these results held controlling for all kinds of things that you think might otherwise explain these relationships, like how much money people had, how old people were. So it worked across the spectrum. Yeah. Right. I'm going to tell you a little story. Can you stay with us for another segment? Yeah. Okay. So I want to tell you a little story. When the Great Recession happened, I am and was a single mother and I had two kids and I was in a big three bedroom with an ocean view and I was freaking out that I was going to lose my place. So I literally said to myself, you know what? We always complain that when we have enough time, we don't have enough money. When we have enough money, we don't have enough time. And here, this recession is giving me the gift of time. How would I like to use it? So I, my kids were young enough that we could cuddle up together. I moved us to a studio apartment, a one little room apartment, and I went to cooking school because it had been my dream to study to be a chef, and I did it just for fun. All right, and I put tenants in my big place that saved us. When we come back, I want to talk about health and giving in relation to this and also pro, uh, pro-social behavior and buying time. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Amy King has the news. KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you and my guest, Dr. Ashley Willens. She's an assistant professor at Harvard Business School in negotiations and looks at how we spend our money and how that's connected to happiness. Before uh, I get into pro-social behavior, let's talk about its impact, how we spend our money and its impact on our relationships and divorce, Dr. Ashley Yeah, so our latest research, um, hot off the presses, is that if uh, um, couples who spend money on time-saving purchases like grocery delivery are significantly happier, have happier marriages um, than couples who don't spend money in this way, and spending money on time-saving purchases has the same effect on relationship satisfaction as having a supportive partner. 
so it seems that how we spend our money not only shapes our own happiness, but the happiness that we get out of our relationship. You know, I always say that relationships don't create happiness. Happy people have happy relationships. So it's often an inside job. And if you're stressed over the division of labor, whether you're a man or a woman, if you feel that you're doing too much of your share, the simple solution is to spend on help, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. That's what we see time and time again in our data. So it's understandable in couples who have a higher socioeconomic status that they can afford to hire the tutors, hire the nannies, hire the help in the stressful years of, say, raising small children. But what about lower socioeconomic status or even the middle class who can't afford the luxuries of these service people? What do you recommend? We have a brand new project looking at um, uh, chore trading in relationships. So couples who do more chores together, that can promote relationship satisfaction. But also um, willingly taking on a chore that you know your partner doesn't like uh, as a way to help out might also be a, a profitable pathway to maritable, marriage bliss. Well, you know, what is a relationship? It is an exchange of care, right? And that it, care can take so many forms. It could be financial care. It can be, you know, a, domestic responsibility care. It can be physical care when someone's sick. It can be sexual care. There's a lot of ways that we care, but wouldn't it be compassionate to be able to go, you know, he really hates to do that. Why don't I do it for him? That would be really investing in the relationship is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. Uh, I've always heard this statistic that the more money people make, the less money they give to charity. Talk to me about what you found out in terms of pro-social behavior. So in terms of pro-social behavior, so that, that first statistic is it's kind of complicated. So in general, people who have more money tend to give less proportionately of their income to charity. So in other words, so if somebody makes $30,000 a year, they give 10%. Somebody makes $300,000 a year, they give 10%. Exactly. They're giving more, ultimately. Yeah, so they, they, exactly. Um, but what we found is that Spending money on others is also a really important way of spending money to increase your own happiness and even potentially your health. So in some of the most striking findings that we have, when we randomly assigned a group of older adults over the age of 65 to spend three payments of $40 on others or three payments of $40 on themselves for three weeks over the course of the six-week study, Mm -hmm. we found that older adults who spent three payments of $40 on others showed significant reductions in blood pressure, about a similar magnitude as um, starting a new aerobic exercise program. Now, these benefits were additive. We're not saying people should stop exercising. Um, But we do see that uh, pro-social spending um, not only improves happiness, but might also improve physical health. Why do you think this is? Helping others makes us feel in control of our lives, makes us feel like we're an active and contributing member to society. And because of this, that helps to protect us from the negative experience of stress on our cardiovascular health and on our overall happiness. You know what? The one, I might I'm, theorize. The one, right, what? I might theorize that it's a little cellular empathy. In other words, if we give to that person on some level, we're realizing we're lowering their blood pressure and we'll have a mirror effect. I have no evidence to speak to that, but I like that hypothesis. (laughs) And we do have some data showing that when you spend money in a way where you can see the direct impact, you know exactly who you're helping and how you're helping them, then that's when the benefits of pro-social spending and charitable spending are most likely to emerge. 
Okay, so as we talked earlier, and I'm with Dr. Ashley Willens from Harvard University, and it's amazing research that you do. Um, we, we talked about that if you take more time for yourself by working a shorter schedule, that comes with the expense of just having less money. And if you work more to earn more money, that cuts into your free time. So when we're trying to maximize our happiness, each and every one of us, Dr. Ashley, what should we do? Give up some of our discretionary income to have more time. We see in large-scale survey research that once you hit uh, uh, an amount of money that your basic needs can be met, you can pay your rent, um, you have some discretionary spending. Earning more money by working more does not translate into greater joy on a daily basis. So my research really shows and suggests that just giving up that extra bit of money to have more free time is how we should be thinking about spending our money in order to promote our own and others' happiness. Okay, so since I have an expert on the phone, let me ask you this. So I uh, lose, lose, see the word I use? Lose 15 hours a week driving my child to cheer practice and waiting for her outside of practice. On the other hand, there is an hour and a half each way in the car where, yes, she's on her iPhone most of the time, but there are these, you know, moments where suddenly she's talking to me about her day that are priceless because she's 14 years old. So I've been debating, do I just hire a driver and have 15 hours back in my week? Or do I realize, I reframe it in my head and say, this is quality time with my teenager who's going to be leaving the nest before I know it. What should I do? I like the positive reframing strategy. So there's a lot of research suggesting that just the way that we think about something can shift a stressful experience into an exciting one, for example. And so I think as long as you're thinking about that time as quality time that you're spending with your daughter, then that shouldn't negatively impact your happiness or hers. So make sure to get in some quality interactions in the midst of uh, her being on her phone. I keep hoping her battery will be dead. I keep like, maybe the battery will be dead on this drive and she's going to have to talk to me. Um, Well, 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 actually, maybe maybe you can make that happen. Exactly. (laughs) I think I'm going to split the difference and I'm going to hire someone to do the Saturday drive. Because I want my Saturdays back. And every Saturday, I drive an hour and a half. I wait for two hours while she's in practice and drive an hour and a half back. And I usually go to a Starbucks or sit on my computer and answer emails. Such a big, like I could be at the gym. I could be walking on the beach. So I think I'm going to buy myself my Saturdays and then drive her on the other two days. Sound like a good idea? Yeah, sounds like a great idea. Our data suggests that time-saving purchases are most likely to promote happiness on the weekend, in part exactly because of what you're saying, that you have more for control over how you spend your leisure time. Exactly. You want to buy yourself out of negative experiences when you have free time to do whatever else you want to do. Right, because whether we want it or not, here it's a Sunday, and Sunday is my work day. Uh, I always feel like I never have a weekend. And so I'm thinking, I'm going to buy myself a Saturday, which is a weekend. And so the way I frame it is that's important to me because it's the day everyone else has off, so I would like to have it off. So yeah. that's, that's my and, plan. And oh. not buying yourself out of that experience all the time is good for happiness, too, because, unfortunately, people get used to, to stuff, and then it stops uh, promoting our oh. happiness. So you outsource all the time. You're going to forget that you're even doing it, and then you're not going to uh, – probably not going to reap the happiness benefits of outsourcing. So okay, so I'm going to call you – Outsourcing only sometimes, that's probably best for your happiness. I'm so sorry, Dr. Ashley Willens. We've got to wrap up, but um, I'm going to call you in the future for parenting advice. You good with that? Sounds good. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for being with us from Harvard University, uh, Dr. Ashley Willens. You're listening to KFI AM 640. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. Amy King's got the news for us. Oh, help me.
AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. So, uh, I don't think uh, it's a secret knowledge that I have a child who's uh, mildly on the spectrum, but mostly her diagnosis is ADHD and ADD. And I can't tell you how difficult it was in the early years, especially dealing with schools, teachers, and administrators who would look at my child's lack of homework, tantrums, impulsive behavior. And what do we do in our culture? We always point the finger at the mother, right? And mothers of children who are not neuro, neurotypical, mothers and fathers, walk through life with a lot of shame. And when we are feeling shame, we react in ways that, uh, you know, maybe defensive, maybe a uh, a little lower than we would, uh, remember, what does Michelle Obama say? When they go low, you go high. Well, sometimes I don't go as high when I'm feeling shamed. It's just, it's the way it is. And I remember when she was very young and, you know, people in IEP meetings would say, well, I think you need a parenting class. And I did everything they said. I dragged my kid up to UCLA, fabulous program, the friendship program there, and uh, took parenting classes. She took social skills classes um, all fighting to try to get services in her educational IEP, stands for Individual Education Plan. But there's interesting research out to show that kids who have ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, actually impact the entire family. I will tell you quite honestly that my older daughter, who was five years older, suffered because the baby, the toddler, the young one was screaming or tantruming, or I was chasing after her in a mall or an airport, and I was just yelling at the other one, like, stop it, I've got to take care of your sister. And she really lost me when her sister came into the world. And new research shows that parents of kids with ADHD, parents, are more anxious, more stressed, and less confident And they have a higher divorce rate because their marriages get strained. I can honestly say that's what happened to me. And the thing that changed it for me was when we finally got a good IEP with a behavioralist who started teaching my daughter ways to self-manage, ways to be more organized. Uh, And you might think that just because I have a PhD in psychology doesn't mean I'm a behavioralist. Doesn't mean that I understand how to manage Um, kids who are not neurotypical. It's a special area of expertise. Here's another interesting thing. Um, So parents partly feel stressed because their kid is not behaving the way they think they should or the way, and you know, we parent, we think we parent our kids all the same. So we're doing our typical parenting behaviors, but it's just not working with this kid, right? Um, And so they tend to be delayed in independence and that puts a lot of stress on parents. The other thing is, these kids often have high IQs. I was recently in an IEP meeting and uh, the resource teacher said, she was also a gen ed teacher at one point, and she had taught my older daughter, the one who's in Harvard, and said, you know, I got to tell you, now that I've taught both your daughters, their intelligence is about the same. And indeed, I've had my daughter, a younger one, tested, so I know she's smart. Well, can you imagine if you've got a smart kid who's also, because she's smart, manipulative, and also has trouble controlling her emotions, and also has trouble staying focused, and also tends to be a little hyperactive, and then you add brains to that. It is so frustrating. And I think the biggest danger for kids and for parents is that no kid wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I'm going to go out today and fail. 
I'm going to go get yelled at by the resource teacher or the recess monitor. I'm going to get yelled at by my mother. This is the kind of day I'm going to have. No, they wake up wanting to try hard, wanting homework to be easy, wanting to do stuff like this. But um, they get demoralized because of all the discipline on them. And they start to believe they're a bad kid. And life is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe you're a bad person, you will be a bad person. Note to you, next time you see any adult misbehaving, don't tell them they're bad. You will only grow that. <laughs> if you tell a bad person they're bad, it only tends to make them worse, right? You've got to water what you want to grow and compliment the good behaviors and try to ignore the bad behaviors. But with kids who have ADHD, um, they don't really understand And they're trying to grit their teeth and they're trying so hard. And people often think it's a motivational issue because some of these kids are actually able to focus on things that absorb their interest. I mentioned in the last segment, these long drives back from Camarillo with cheerleading and sometimes an hour and a half in traffic. And she can just play that game on her phone with her headset on for an hour and a half straight and not move. And you know, I want to scream, and you can't do your math homework in this time? You can't focus on that? But this is a fascinating thing about ADHD. If they find something that is of absorbing interest, because often, especially if they're a lispectromy, they have, um, then they're, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's some fancy word for just, they they persevere, and they focus and focus and focus on something they're interested in, and you can't distract them into the thing. And transitioning her to a new activity was always hard when she was young. So it looks like a motivational issue, but it's not. It's that the child has what we call executive function issues. They need help with planning and they're often trying hard. So what do these kids need? They need educational testing, which you can demand from your school. Hello, it's the law. I don't care if you go to a private school, a charter school, a small school, a big school, a public school. This is my soapbox. You must request in writing for full psychoeducational testing. And they have 10 business days to reply to you. And if they don't give it to you, then you get a lawyer. Or you just keep bugging them until you get enough evidence to get a lawyer. Um, they may need, your kid may need accommodations in school, which could be less homework. Because you know what? Research has shown that more homework doesn't make you learn better. Right, So sometimes with those math problems, my daughter only has to do 50% of the math problems, but it still takes her twice as long as any other kid because her processing speed is slow and the focus issues, right? She's still learning and still able to get good grades when she has the support she needs. Um, All right, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, a couple other things with ADHD. And then can we talk about your dreams? Uh, Do you remember your dreams? If not, I'm going to tell you how. And do you want to call me a little later? I'd like to analyze a few dreams today. Wouldn't that be fun, Joey? Let's do that. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. I've been talking a little bit about ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADD. And there's some new research out that I wanted to share. That whole preamble last time was to, I was pouring out my heart about my experiences. But really, I just wanted to set it up so I could tell you about this new research. So, uh, not good news for me. Israeli research links acetaminophen during pregnancy with ADHD and autism. This was an extensive study done in Israel, uh, found that mothers who continuously used a popular pain relief medication, we call it Tylenol here, during their pregnancy, face an increased risk 
of the newborn suffering from autism or ADHD. Um, 30% increased risk. So that's pretty big. Um, and I don't know what continuously used was because, I mean, what OBGYNs tell you is that Tylenol is a safe thing. Joey, do you have ADHD? Uh, yeah, and if you couldn't tell, that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do, actually, yeah, and it's uh, quite quite severe. And did you ask your mom? Did she take a lot of Tylenol? I'm about to text message <laughs> after hearing this headline. Let's stop blaming moms. Let's stop blaming moms. Um, also, um, while we're talking about pregnancy and other things, did you know that herpes infection during the early stages of pregnancy is linked to an increased risk of autism? That I... Okay, so listen, if the baby actually gets the herpes virus, it dies, okay, if the fetus gets it. So mm-hmm. that it's not that the baby gets affected by the herpes virus, but the suggestion is that as the mother's body fights off the herpes outbreak um, in the early stages, like the first, you know, 12 weeks of development, the baby's nervous system is developing, and that can be impacted by her own wow. immune response to it. Fascinating. I love this research. Um, okay. Is that all I want to say about this? Oh, AD. Oh, you'll like this one, Joey. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know actually if you take ADHD medications, but did you know that ADHD medications may reduce the risk of sexually transmitted infections? I did not know that. Now, no. why do you think that would be? I do not know. You hear, <laughs> I cannot. You hear that headline and you think connection. it's biological, right? Oh, yeah. I take this medicine and somehow it'll prevent me from getting an STD. Right. No, what the medicine does is it prevents impulsive, high-risk behavior. Uh, okay. It makes somebody with ADHD stop long enough and focus and mm. go, you know what? I should probably put on a condom mm. or I should probably not have sex with this person, right? Wow. So that's how it works. I mean, sometimes these these headlines are misleading. Okay, can we talk about dreams? Do you remember do your it. dreams, Joey? Uh, I do, I do. Uh, not not everybody does. Not all the time, but yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing. If I were in private practice and want to remind everybody, I do not maintain a clinical license. You don't need that to teach. I teach at Cal State Channel Islands in their psychology department. So uh, any any if you think you're ever getting any advice or therapy from me, we, we like to call it around here drive-by makeshift therapy. So I want to make sure that disclaimer is out there before you call me and tell me your dream so I can analyze it because it's drive-by makeshift radiotherapy. Okay, it is what it is. However, uh, when I was in private practice... I loved to work with dreams, and Sigmund Freud called dreams the royal road to the unconscious. He believed that our dreams were what he called pre-conscious material, meaning that deep in our unconscious was stuff that our consciousness wasn't able to tolerate yet. So it created wonderful pictures and feelings and stories, and it became pre-conscious material. And so, therefore, analyzing dreams, and especially over an extended period of time, when you start to notice themes crop up over and over, and you can paint together the picture of what the unconscious is trying to tell you, is uh, really helpful. So, uh, here's how to remember your dreams if you don't normally remember your dreams. First of all, don't drink. Okay, alcohol suppresses dreams. They and there has also been some research to show that antidepressants and and weed completely. He's making like smoking things with his fingers, right? I mean, don't forget weed. I Dr. didn't know Wendy. my mic was on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah marijuana, marijuana That's too. Right. A great uh, dream suppressor. Dream suppressor. And yeah. dreams are good for us. It's where our brains work out remnant leftover material Absolutely. from the day and get rid of stress. Where our brains refuel. 
we must, and, and if we're overtired and our circadian rhythms are all messed up, we're not going to get into deep REM so that we can get into stage four sleep and remember our dreams. And I've heard that if we don't get that REM sleep, that we could die, actually, if we don't have these dreams and, and things like that. It is associated with decreased longevity. Yeah. It is associated with weight gain. Um, so here's how to remember your dreams. Oh, Do, I don't can't wait drink. for this. Don't drink. <laughs> Secondly, keep a regular sleep schedule. So whatever time you go to bed, make it the same time every night as much as you can. Okay, I'm, I'm 0 for 2 so okay, far. Good, good, good. 0 for 2. Oh, no. <laughs> this is not good. Uh, then when you do go to sleep, when you t- actually tell yourself as you're falling asleep, when you get in that nice half asleep, half awake state, you literally say, I'm going to remember my dreams. I'm going to remember my dreams. So you're giving yourself the power of suggestion as you fall asleep. Then when you wake up, and this is really important, you know when you first wake up, oh, and the other thing is try to wake up without an alarm. (laughs) So try to like actually get as much sleep as you're supposed to have. And when you start to wake up, again, stay in that halfway state between waking and sleep and grab onto the last dream you had. Now, again, really important, before you even get up and go to the bathroom, reach over with your eyes closed, take your pen and paper that you've left right at arm's reach beside your bed, and write down a few keywords, three keywords to help that dream stay in your head. And then you can stumble up and go to the bathroom and you'll be able to keep it. But if you just jump up, especially if an alarm blasts and you're a jumper out of bed or you run because you need to go to the bathroom so bad, that dream is gone. It's gone. You need to stay and hold it for a few minutes. Or and- have you ever had this where you, you wake up and you go, oh my gosh, I had the craziest dream. And you go, I'm going, and you tell yourself you're going to remember it. And so, but I do that. I just don't write them down. You write those keywords. And then like an hour later, I go, what was that dream? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What? Okay. It was good. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And it's just gone. Like wiped from your memory. And it was so vivid. And it can be very helpful. Like honestly, in therapy, I would have clients bring in their dreams, write them all out. And I would be hearing different stuff. And also I'm keeping track of the jigsaw puzzle pieces of their unconscious process. And I'm, I'm seeing them you know, sort of connecting the dots over the course of the weeks. And it was so, so helpful. So um, we, so here's how I analyze dreams. And here's what you should know about your own dreams. And if you do have a dream that you had last night that you want to tell me, that's not too embarrassing. And you can tell me quickly, because I don't want to hear like, a and then he went, and then we went there. And by the time we moved there, no, no, I want a short and sweet dream. You can call me in the next couple segments. We'll take calls. Um, but what I believe, is that every person and everything in the dream is a piece of your psyche. It's a piece of you. Because sometimes as an experiment, I would say, you know, tell me, so they tell me, I'm making this up, well, I had this fight with my boss and uh, uh, he was really mean to me and then I ended up getting fired. And so you could say on surface level, it's remnant fear about, you know, survival, losing your paycheck, etc. Or you could say, Tell me about the boss. I want you to write down the dream from the boss's standpoint. What happened when you walked into the room? What was the boss feeling, right? So especially when there's a bunch of characters in the dream, it's really fun to do this. And I also believe that, you know, you know those dream theorists say, well, if you dream about a white horse, it means this. And if you dream about a candle, it means that. No, 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 no. It, your representation in your dreams are your own personal memories. So what I will ask um, after a, a client would tell me their dream, I would take three or four of the key pieces and I would practice association. I'd say the beach. 
tell me about the beach. What comes to mind when you think about a beach? And often they'll go back to a childhood memory. Well, we used to go to the beach all the time when I was a kid or whatever. And, and I would just let that stream of consciousness go. And sometimes it'll dabble into something. Well, there was the time I almost drowned at that beach. Uh, my mom wasn't watching or something, right? And uh, so I'm able through association, and I do it with three or four different things in the dream, to start to find these themes that come up. So when we come back, I would love to hear about the dream you had last night. The number to call is one 800 5201KFI 1-800-520-1KFI that's 1-800-520-1534 Joey's going to go in there and screen the calls I see them lighten up already 1-800-520-1KFI make it short and sweet and remember this is drive-by makeshift therapy this is the Dr. Wendy Walsh show on KFI AM 640 Amy King's got the news AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you, and we are talking dreams. I happen to be somebody who has very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Vivid. Vivid, there's the word, thank you. (laughs) Did I have a little too much wine with my steak last night? I'm forgetting words. Um, Vivid dreams, and I love those dreams, and I love to hear about other people's dreams. So let's quickly go through. We'll start with Emily in Los Angeles. Hi, Emily, it's Dr. Wendy. Hello, hello. Love your show. Thank you. So tell me about your dream. Well, first off, I wanted to note that I don't have dreams very often. Oh. And when I do, they're like sometimes silly, like, I don't know, Donald Duck chasing me around town in a bulldozer. So <laughs> There might be a Donald Trump image in there somehow. I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> so this one, though, kind of disturbs me because it's never been so um, upsetting. But my daughter, she, this was a couple years ago. And um, basically the dream was we were in a situation where, like, a tsunami had hit our town. Oh, dear. And um, we were separated. Mm-hmm. And I go into a pub, because that's where I'm going to find my daughter, right? But I walk into a pub, and I'm like, has anybody seen my daughter? And I'm calling her by name, as if everybody knows her. Mm-hmm. And they all look like they know her, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're all saying no, 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 no. Um, and then, and I, this is after... Earlier in the dream, looking other places, but this is kind of where the climax is, where basically she walks in, and I'm like, oh, my God, thank you. There you are, and I'm so glad to see you. And then she's just looking at me. She's just looking at me with this, like, mellow, solemn face on, not sad, not happy, just looking at me. And I'm like, you're dead, aren't you? And she's like, yes, I am. Wow. And she says to me, um, I mean, I've never... It still upsets me, you know, but, um, and she says to me, but it's okay. We're religious, so she says, mm-hmm. okay, I'm with Heavenly Father, mm-hmm. and, uh, and thank you. So it was crazy. Like, So let I, me ask you this. You had this dream only one time two years ago, and it has stayed with you? Yes. How old was and your I daughter at the time? Rarely remember my dream. Yeah. Um, she was uh, nine. She was nine? Yeah. Okay, so... Let me talk a little bit about some of the circumstantial things. When I hear tsunami and water, um, I really, again, although I just said, you know, a white horse doesn't mean this and a candle doesn't mean that, I find that it's very common, especially when people are submerged in water, for it to be a connection to their unconscious. And I'm wondering what happened to you when you were nine. Is there anything that you can remember? Um... My life, when I was nine, 
I mean, life is different. I, uh, but it was it wasn't in a bad way. It was in a good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent a lot of time with my my father's mother, my grandmother, who I rarely got to see. Um, but I learned a lot from her, and uh, I was living in Colorado at the time. Um, don't remember any incidences with water. If that's kind of where no, no, was. not water. But, but I'm no. saying that it's unconscious processes, meaning that you're going oh, deeper okay. inside your own psyche. Things that okay. have been submerged and are scary because right. a tsunami is a scary thing. So I'm thinking there are some yeah. scary memories attached to the nine-year-old you. Right. And I'm, uh, yeah, okay. I'm Sorry, wondering if there was separation, if you went to visit grandma and you were separated. And can, is there anything else not that, that comes I to mind? Not that I remember. Okay. Not, 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 not like to, not in a bad way. Yeah. Not there was separation from my parents, I guess, and my mom. So yeah, but, uh, I, I want to uh, give you an assignment before I go to the next person's dream. And that is to write out this dream in every detail that you can remember. And with every piece of it, the bar, what it looked like, the tsunami, take a few minutes and write some associations, some other memories connected. If you, if you were to tear it apart from the dream and just have the bar or just have the tsunami, what do you remember about tsunamis? Where were you when the Thailand one happened? What did you see on TV, right? Any association that you personally might have, and you will start to see the picture. And then my other assignment is when you go to sleep, ask for that dream to come back. And maybe it'll continue and you'll learn more. Thank you, Emily. So nice to hear that dream. Okay, Melissa from uh, Buena Park. I don't have the right glasses on here. Buena Park, right? Hi, Melissa. Hi. Hi. Tell me about your dream. It's Dr. Wendy. Okay, so I'm going to... Just be straightforward and honest. This one's really odd. So I was in Albertsons. I don't recall who I was with, but I know I was in Albertsons, and I got this weird craving for sushi. Uh-huh. And so we go to find this sushi, and the guy was like, trust me, you don't want to eat this stuff. And I was looking, and I was like, yeah, it just honestly looked horrible. Just one piece of fish, like something weird looking and like a glob of wasabi. And then uh-huh. there was one pack that looked like this like little um, armadillo-looking thing, and I started trying to Snapchat it. Uh-huh. And the thing started breaking out of the pack of sushi. Ooh. And it started chasing me. And the thing just, like, grew humongously. And it, I just spent my whole dream trying to figure out a way to kill this thing. But it just only wanted to kill me for some reason. Wow. And it was, it was okay. really weird. <laughs> so, okay, Melissa, don't go away because I have some big thoughts on this and we have to go to commercial. And the other couple people who are waiting, please hang in there because I have some really great ideas about this dream. It's so fascinating to me. You're listening to KFI AM 640. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. Amy King has the news. KFI AM 640. This is Dr. Wendy Walsh. We are doing some dream analysis and I want to remind you this is... Uh, just drive-by therapy. It's kind of like marginal legal advice from Bill Handel. Same kind of deal. And you should never substitute going for real therapy, especially if anything I say brings you any distress because I'm having fun and doing radio at the same time. Okay, we've been talking to Melissa in Buena Park. And her dream is that she was in Albertsons. She was ordering sushi. And who was it who told you, Melissa, not to eat the sushi? Uh, it was one of the workers. He didn't workers. think um, it was like already the prepackaged stuff. He's like, you, yeah. trust me, you don't want to have this sushi. Right. He's warning you. And then you looked at this one package of sushi and it had what looked like an armadillo in it. You tried to Snapchat it. It grew large. Uh, you, uh, you know, wanted to kill it, but it was trying to kill you. Did I get it? Yes. Okay. Tell- I spent the whole dream with a sequence of things happening like that. Yeah. Okay. So tell me the, oh, if you could name just one feeling that you mostly had in this dream, what was the feeling? Um, 
probably frustration that it wouldn't die. Uh-huh. So it wasn't necessarily fear for your life, but just frustration that you couldn't accomplish this thing and it wouldn't die and wouldn't go away. Um, let me ask you this. Any associations with armadillos? Um, not necessarily, but I am kind of a bit of a crazy pescatarian. Like I'm, like whole morale is like suited around animals and their rights and not eating them and so forth. They eat fish for um, other reasons, but yeah. This, and the research shows that you do need that fish oil for your brain health. So keep keep up with that. Okay, so basically the armadillo was going against your diet as a pescatarian, correct? Actually, yes. And it came to your attention just because it was different, right? Yes, it did. Okay. And you tried to Snapchat it. So you wanted to share this new interesting thing with other people. But it grew so large and you couldn't kill it. And you felt very frustrated about this. I did, just because it was trying to kill me. Yeah. So you're not going to like what I have to say. So your biology, I think, is telling your brain that you're missing a few nutrients in your pescatarian diet. I'm not suggesting that you change your diet necessarily and go out eat an armadillo. But you might want to see a nutritionist and see what you're missing out on because this thing is growing large for you and you are trying so hard to stick to what you ideologically want. But I'm wondering if your body is needing something else and it's sending you a message. I never thought about it that way. That's Okay. And one other thing. Do you know any, anyone named Albert or anybody with a father named Albert? No, I do not. But there's an Albertsons right down the street for me. Okay, so, so it's a common place. Because sometimes our brain does yeah. that. It literally just puts in words. And we're, I'm like, well, how about, well, my boyfriend's dad is named Albert. <laughs> Wouldn't you know? I'm like, Albert's son. You're having some issues with him. Okay. Because <laughs> plenty of times this comes up. So I would... Uh, I would actually think a little bit about your diet because I think your body's telling you something and I'm not saying go out and eat animals, but there might be other ways to get some nutrients that you might be missing out on because you're feeling really frustrated right now. And this is growing in to be a big problem. It's growing large. That's my guess. Thank you so much. Thanks, Melissa. So nice to talk to you. Okay, now we've got, uh, how about, uh, oh, Joe in Rancho Cucamonga. You've got a recurring dream for me. Hi, Joe. It's Dr. Wendy. Hi, Dr. Wendy. You got so glad re- you came to me. I'm running short on time. But, uh, yeah, i got a very, very uh, strange one. It's, it's been a recurring dream for many, many, many years. Okay. And so it's either uh, like a string in my back that I discover, and I try to remove it. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's a string like a like a hangnail that I'm trying to pull out of my finger, mm-hmm. and as I pull, it just keeps coming out and mm-hmm. out, and I can't. I try to bite it to break it; it just will not break. Never once have I been able to break and detach that string. Oh, and how do you feel at that time in the dream? Well, I heard you ask the other caller the same thing, and the only the only feeling is that I'm afraid that if I keep pulling the string, I'm going to be like pulling parts of my body out mm. if that makes any sense have you in other have, words it just keeps coming and coming and coming and i figure something's got to give i'm gonna and you how body. often do you have this dream uh quite honestly at least a handful of times a year interesting 
Have you ever had any OCD-like qualities? Oh, well, yes. I, I've been, uh, had OCD that, that I can remember for, since I've been a teenager. Yeah, that, that's how it's, it's playing out. Your unconscious is showing you these obsessive compulsive feelings. And for those who have never had this experience, this pulling the string or pulling a hangnail um, and this fear that you will literally unravel but you can't stop it is the best metaphor I think I've ever heard for OCD. And so I think that this is, you know, this is what it feels like and how it's playing out. I would, um, you know, maybe try to drink a glass of warm milk before you go to bed, (laughs) calm down, meditate. (laughs) I think that might help you a little bit, but I don't think it's anything dangerous. I just think this is how OCD is working itself out in your dream. And hey, better to happen in the middle of the night in the in a dream than you being stuck washing your hands all day long and unable to be functional in life, right? Yeah. <laughs> Joe, well, I, I, I appreciate it. I've never been able to make sense of it, but it's funny you nailed it right on, yeah. on the head. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it. And I'm sorry you're struggling a little bit with that one, um, but it sounds like you've been managing very well. Joe from Rancho Cucamonga, thank you for sharing your dream. Okay, let's move to Greg in, I can't read the screen. Is it Wrightwood or Brightwood? Wrightwood. Hi, Greg in Wrightwood. It's Dr. Wendy. Hi, how are you? Good. Tell me about your dream. Oh, this is so boring for your listeners. Okay, well, I want to remind you and the listeners, this isn't real therapy and not a substitution for therapy. And if any feelings come up because I've said something that... Uh, it feels uncomfortable, then please, I recommend you go talk to somebody who's licensed. Okay, Greg, go ahead. <laughs> All right, no worries. Hey, it's something that I have at least two or three times a week. A week? Whoa, that's yeah. really recurring. Okay. And all I'm doing is setting up a camp. I'm driving stakes for a tent, putting a rain fly on, building a fire pit, whatever, and nothing happens. Sometimes there's rain. Sometimes it's windy, but there's no kicker to it or anything like that. And it's just all the time. And my alarm goes off for work, and I'm like, oh, I just set up a camp. I want to kick back. <laughs> ah. So, so let me ask you this. Um, do you do a lot of camping, or do you have associations oh, yeah, with camping? Yeah, I'm a mountaineer. I've been to 20,000 feet and all that stuff. Um, been doing it all my life. And what is the overall feeling you have with these dreams when it comes? Just like, okay, got to set up another camp. <laughs> and But does it feel like work and a burden, or are you excited to set up this camp? Is this a good feeling? Definitely not excited. Like, it's like something that I have to do. Have to do. You know what, that's a actually wonderful thing to say. So what's fascinating is that you told me that when, just before waking or when you do wake with this dream, you're like, oh, I got to get up and do my day. I'm not camp. I just built this camp, right? Right. And then you say it's something I just got to do and described yourself as a mountaineer and that you've done a lot of camping in your life. And I really believe that you are somebody who's very attached to nature. And this is something you just got to do, right? And the fact that you are forced into this world that involves beds and alarms and getting in your car and going to work and those other things is sort of, that's the imposition because you want to get back to that campsite. Oh yeah. That's the natural you. 
And I just work. Why not enjoy it? Exactly. Thank you so much. We have to go to a break, but I really appreciate you telling me your dream, Joe, and and camping. What a great dream. Uh, All right. When we come back, I'm going to take one more, and then I want to talk briefly about the royal wedding before we go. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Amy King, you got the news for us? Oh, help me. Please, doctor. I'm damaged. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. We are doing my drive-by makeshift therapy. Should not be construed with real therapy at all. Uh, my next caller is Bozia or Bazia in El Segundo. Hi. 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 What Did I say your name right? Uh, it's Bazia, but you know, that's okay. Bazia. How old are you, Bazia? I'm 11 years old. Oh, wow. Uh, do your parents know that you're calling into a radio show and talking about your dreams? Yeah, my mom's right here. Okay. Can I? Can you put your mom on and just say I have her permission? Yeah. Yes, it's fine. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So uh, tell me about your dream. Um. Well, sometimes it happens maybe like once or twice a month. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I wake up and I'm in Disneyland and it's raining churros and then a bunch of birds are following me. <laughs> it's really strange. Okay, it raining churros and birds are following you. Uh, yes. And uh, tell me about your feeling in that dream whenever you have it. Uh, I'm kind of scared that um, the birds are following me, but it's kind of fun that it's raining churros. Yeah, I would say. And... Tell me about your real life. Do you go to Disneyland very often? Oh, my gosh. You don't even know. Yes, we do. Oh. My you, mom, you have an annual pass? Yeah. And so you go regularly, and you have these yeah. dreams regularly, but it's raining churros. So tell me about churros. Do you like to eat churros? I love churros. They're oh. so good. <laughs> so, uh, you know... I, 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 tell me a little more about birds. If someone asks you about birds, what is your feeling about birds in general, separate from the dream, just birds in general? Uh, I don't like birds. Actually, my favorite kind of bird is an eagle, but other than that, I do not like pigeons. And the kind of birds that are following me are pigeons. So. Oh, so they're birds that you don't like. Yeah. And why don't you like those birds? Because they're needy. They try to steal your food. Oh, oh and I don't like seagulls. And what? I don't like seagulls. Oh, yeah, they do the same thing, right? Okay, so you ready for my uh, drive-by makeshift uh, analysis here? Yes. Okay, so obviously this is a, you're having a great childhood. Just want to let you know. And uh, getting to go to Disneyland all the time and having wonderful dreams that underscore the fact that you're having a happy childhood. But I think at the age of 11, you're realizing that your childhood is going to leave at some point. And it's going to stop raining churros. And there are those birds hovering, the things that you don't know. They're in the sky, like in your head, right? Birds fly, they're in the sky, and they're flying around your brain. These thoughts that the churros are going to end, and you're not going to be a child anymore. And this is a very, very common feeling that people get when they go through life transitions. And, you know, it's, it's, it's great to grow up and have so much more freedom, but it's also kind of scary, too, because then you're not you know, a kid being taken care of all the time. That's true. Yeah. How'd I do? You did well. I think you should really be a licensed. Oh. <laughs> but I teach. You see, for me, I found that it was so much better to talk to 
thousands of people on the radio and dozens and dozens of students in my classes. And when my time was spent one-on-one with just a few clients, I didn't feel like I was, you know, helping the world as much. It's more fun to talk to bigger numbers of people. So that's why I do what I do in the way that I do. And I write books that people can read too. And You're very good. Thank you. What do you want to be when you grow up? Everyone else. A what? An actress. I'm already an actress, but I want to be like a famous actress. Okay, well, you're in the right city for it. Can I? Uh, and that now that I know that, that's probably why this dream is happening because so many kids in the entertainment business are forced to grow up too quickly. So I have a little bit of advice for mom. Even though, and I know they do this on sets, they push the mothers away, they push the mothers away, and the kids get exposed to so much adult stuff that they shouldn't be too early. I want your mom to be the bossy mom who stays watching you on sets. Don't go in the other room with the other moms and watch the screen. Just be near and keep your kids safe. <laughs> Which I feel like your mom's a good mom anyway. I mean, you're dreaming about Disneyland. <laughs> okay, thanks for calling, Bazia. Thank you so much right. for having me. Take care. Bye, sweetie. I love you, too. Oh, my God. She's adorable. Maybe we should just do kids calling. Oh, but then we'd have to get all those parental consents. All right. Can we talk about weddings? Because, you know, I'm a little giddy and crazy about the darn royal wedding because there is a L.A. connection to it. I'm talking about Prince Harry marrying uh, Meghan Markle. And she is, is um, okay, here's what I haven't talked about. I've talked about a lot about the wedding. And just to remind everybody, it's going to be on Saturday, May 19th. At 4 a.m. Pacific, our time, which is uh, noon local time. Oh, no, the schedule's for noon local time, 7 a.m. Eastern. Yeah, noon in Windsor Castle, shall we say. Uh, Okay, let's talk about their past relationships, shall we? Because Megan is actually divorced. So she was married to a filmmaker named Trevor Engelson, E-N-G-E-L-S-O-N. You can Google him and see their picture together. They dated for seven years. Then she married him on a beach in Jamaica in 2011. There were just 100 guests at that wedding. Still, 100 people to fly to Jamaica. That's pretty. That's a good turnout. Uh, but they were divorced two years later. This is a very common thing. I find that people in long-term relationships where the passion is starting to die try to add excitement to it by planning a big old romantic wedding. And then they get divorced soon after the wedding. I know many, many occasions of people who are dated too long Really, they burned up all the passion years of the relationship. And then they thought, oh, we'll save the relationship. The worst is not by having a wedding, but by having a baby. We'll save the relationship by having a baby. Okay, in his case, uh, who did he date? He dated, uh, uh, okay, for seven years he dated Chelsea Davey, a Zimbabwean lawyer turned jeweler. Then there was the aristocratic actress, Chrisita Bonus, and most recently pop star Ellie Gould. Goulding, did I say that right? Ellie, Ellie Goulding. Um, amazingly, all three of these exes are expected to attend the wedding. So obviously they have uh, a good relationship. Okay, the wedding dress, uh, the royal wedding dress, of course, to design that is one of the most prestigious commissions in British fashion. The current favorite we are hoping, we don't know yet, uh, at least if you believe gossipy fashion magazines, is a brand called Ralph and Russo. Megan chose a dress made by the London Couture House for her official engagement portraits. And the brand is known for over-the-top wedding dresses. Um, Beyonce loves them. The Kardashians love them. Um, so we, we will see. And Harry, of course, is going to wear a uniform because, let's see, he received the title of Captain General Royal Marines in 2017, which means he's the ceremonial head of the Royal Marines. He took the job from his grandpa. 
Uh, and also, he's an officer in the Blues and Royals, part of the Army Air Corps. So all of this is to say he's got uniforms, and he can wear that. Now, what about, so there's the wedding, the 1,200 people, but uh, at the end, there's an after party for 200, and I'll tell you about that next week. We might have a guest next week who's going to be at the wedding here in the studio, which would be really cool. Thank you so much for being with me. This has been the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. We'll see you next Sunday. Mo Kelly is next.